And hello again, everybody. This is episode 16 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. If you're joining me on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, don't forget to click like and subscribe. Or if you're joining on my YouTube channel, which I do continue to try to improve on the daily, don't forget to click like and smash that subscriber bell. So today we're going to talk about probably my favorite person to ever work in the movie business. And that would be Clinton Eastwood Jr., or Clint Eastwood for short. Now I do have one poster from, I don't think Dirty Harry is his most famous film. It was the key film in his career because it took him over the top into absolute global superstar status. Um, Mr. Eastwood is 93 years old now. He is more or less the last one from his generation still working. Um, others who are still around, like Gene Hackman, is still alive, long retired. Um, Paul Newman, who was a little bit older, has you know passed many years ago. But Clint, incredibly, at age 93, imagine a man who was born on May 31st, 1930, he's still working. He's making a movie called Juror Number Two with um, Kiefer Sutherland and Nicholas Hoult. And um, not sure if filming wrapped. I know it was like everything else was interrupted by the by the strike and all of the stuff going back and forth. He didn't really have anything to say about it. Um, but they are back filming now, as far as I know. And this will invariably be his final film. It's extraordinary that they were able to get insurance for it given his age. I don't know the mechanics of it. I know that the head of Warner, uh, David Zaslav, took some heat because he seemed to criticize the previous hierarchy for giving Clint the go-ahead to make um, Cry Macho, which ended up disappointing, even though it was not a big budget by any stretch. It, I saw it. I love Clint. It wasn't very good. It was just okay. Uh, and Zaslav who is clearly a genius from the business perspective, not afraid to ruffle feathers, certainly made some enemies, but he implied, and it's ironic given the story I'm going to tell you today, but he was frustrated that the previous hierarchy, um, they, they didn't sell him on why they uh, funded Cry Macho. And what he got out of them was that they let Clint make that movie because of what he had done for the studio. And Zaslav said something to the effect of, this is not show friends, this is show business. And it's one thing to say this man, you know, was one of the people who helped build the empire that is Warner Brothers, going back to the 60s. But he wanted them to say, we funded this because we thought it was gonna be a huge hit, or artistically, it was gonna be an Oscar contender. He just didn't like the way that they described it, and then he did take a lot of criticism for that, like, bro, don't go after Clint Eastwood, even though you were trying to say, you guys didn't sell me on why you did this, why should I keep you around? It, it, it came out wrong. So he then went out of his way to, whether he spoke to Eastwood himself, that I don't know, but he said, he's going to make one more movie for us, and we love the script, you know, again, saying all the right things. So he was kind of not apologetic, but pointing out that I had an issue not with the man, I had an issue with, I didn't like the way that they explained 
their process here for this movie. So the movie I'm going to talk about today and the kind of little-known story attached to it is In the Line of Fire, a 1993 film, incredible, it's more than 30 years old, that ended up being uh, one of the biggest box office hits in Clint's entire career and somewhat of an outlier in the sense that he, Clint, did not direct and I don't think, in fact he didn't, have a hand in the production. It was not a Malpaso production. He didn't direct it or produce it. He simply acted in it. And if you chart his career going back to the late 80s, there aren't very many films where he just shows up and is what you would call a hired gun. But In the Line of Fire ended up being uh, a significant box office hit in that crazy packed summer of 93 with Jurassic Park and The Fugitive and, you know, Arnold's last action hero, and the original Super Mario Brothers, which bombed, uh, Dennis the Menace, Made in America. There were so many movies, many of which um, performed below expectations, such as a few of the ones I just mentioned, and Last Action Hero. But Jurassic Park just crushed everything. And In the Line of Fire and The Fugitive were also huge hits from that summer. So In the Line of Fire rolled up uh, just under $200 million box office gross. And you can kind of work out the math from, you know, the inflation-adjusted perspective of just how big a hit the movie was. And for an action film, a suspense thriller, a psychological thriller with a, at the time, 62, 63-year-old Clint Eastwood trying to stop a bad guy from a presidential assassination, it got great critical reviews. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a, an absolutely absurd score, given the fact that this is not a movie that on the surface would appear to be a critic's movie. This is an audience movie, a popcorn-munching, edge-of-your-seat you know, action thriller. So Clint Eastwood started slowly. He was a contract player. Well, first off, he, he dug pools. You know, he was a guy who worked with his hands. And he became a contract player around Hollywood, which meant that he belonged to certain studios. And he was trained in certain things like movement in front of the camera, how to hit your marks properly, how to seed, C-E-D-E, to the star of the film. And there are some early movies where there's one that he did with Rock Hudson and another he did with John Agar. And there were movies where, you know, you could just be flipping channels and say, is that Clint Eastwood? He's like 25 years old. Uh, and he actually appeared on an episode of the original Brett Maverick TV series with a famous actor, great, you know, all-timer in James Garner, um, was the star of Brett Maverick. And he, you know, a little bit older than Clint. Uh, James Garner, for the people under 35 who might not know the name offhand, he's the old Ryan Gosling in The Notebook. That's him, James Garner. He was a star, huge TV star of the show, Brett Maverick. And Clint, who I believe was 26 at the time, so this would have put it in the 1956, 57 range, he guest starred as a villain on the show. And, and he's so young. But you can see there's something there. He didn't accidentally become Clint Eastwood. Even in a limited role where he had to follow the script and just essentially had to be a foil for Brett Maverick's nonsense, which is more or less what it was. The show was 
not really that serious. It was mostly, a lot of it was for laughs, and Garner was fantastic at playing to the camera. Uh, but Clint engages. He engages, and he makes an impression. And, you know, later, the two guys worked together uh, 44 years later in the movie Space Cowboys, which is one of my favorites of the kind of second tier of Clint films, just, just so much fun, where four former NASA flyboys who kind of got, um, not even flyboys, they kind of got screwed by NASA uh, out of the space program and never actually got to go into space the way that NASA astronauts did. And they end up having to save the world. They get to go up. It's a very, very entertaining movie. And James Garner is part of the crew with Clint and um, Tommy Lee Jones and the guy that my father, may he rest in peace, used to get mistaken for Donald Sutherland. Sutherland is a highlight. But Clint had this incredible run as actor, as director, as producer, starting in the late 60s with, um, uh, I should say as far as producer, starting in the early 70s and director, where he made his directorial debut with Play Misty for Me. And his old buddy from Dirty Harry, Don Siegel, was the one who actually talked Clint into getting his director's card, his director's guild, his producer's guild credentials. So we probably have his old buddy, Don Siegel, to thank for uh, his directorial career. I mean, maybe he would have gotten into it anyway, but the story that I've read multiple locations, different books, and you can Google this, is that Siegel knew that Clint could do it. He could just tell by the way they were chatting in terms of setting up shots in movies like Coogan's Bluff, Two Meals for Sister Sarah. He knew that the guy, he had the eye, and he had the work ethic to be a filmmaker. So you go through uh, the first part of Clint's career, the Spaghetti Westerns, and then becoming a big star over here with films like Dirty Harry and Magnum Force, which was the sequel, and High Plains Drifter. And, um, you know, through the 70s, he had some movies which disappointed, uh, but very few outright failures. Like maybe Joe Kidd you could consider a, a failure. But Iger Sanction turned a profit, and even kind of lesser-known movies like The Gauntlet, turned a profit, Thunderbolt, Lightfoot, all of these movies turned a profit. Then he started doing different things, and he did the Any Which Way But Loose movies, um, Every Which Way But Loose, which was a massive, massive box office hit in 1978. It was like neck and neck with Superman for biggest growth, like the original Superman, Christopher Reeve. That is how big a hit Every Which Way But Loose was. And so I've talked about on the podcast when Sylvester Stallone strayed from his comfort zone and attempted comedy, and audiences kind of rejected it. Clint did it, and he was in his mid to late 40s, and audiences ate it up. So he did Every Which Way But Loose, which was right turn Clyde, you know, the infamous with the orangutan that punched people in the face. Uh, and then he did Escape from Alcatraz, the final film that he made with Don Sieg, which is a great prison movie, a prison escape movie, essentially. Uh, I don't want to say Shawshank before Shawshank, but if you watch Shawshank and then immediately go into Escape from Alcatraz, you're going to laugh because you're going to say, like, 50% of the movies are, are the same. This is not to take away from Shawshank, but the mechanics of a prison escape are not going to be that different. You're going to have to dig a tunnel somewhere and do something to get out of your cell. So through the 80s, Clint continued making his own movies, uh, you know, directing films. And of course, I forgot in 76, he did Outlaw Josie Wales, which was a big success and artistically a terrific film perhaps his best directorial effort of that time. 
His movies continued turning profits throughout the 80s. But then in the late 80s, he kind of, it's not that he seemed to be slowing down, but that audiences were not responding to his work, to his films, whether or not he actually directed them in the same way. And he had a, a hit film with Heartbreak Ridge, which he made while serving one term as mayor of his adopted hometown, Carmel, California, or Carmel by the Sea, if you prefer. And Heartbreak Ridge is one of my favorite, certainly in my top 10, Clint. It's close to top five. It's a great film for what it tries to do. And he's so good in that role. Like there are certain roles that when you think of Clint Eastwood, you remember Dirty Harry, you remember William Money for Unforgiven. I remember Frank Hargan from the movie In the Line of Fire I'm gonna get more into. But I remember Gunnery Sergeant Tom Highway from Heartbreak Ridge. And that was probably the last uh, big box office hit of that sort of iteration. Clint was in his mid-50s. Again, it was the only movie he made while serving as mayor of Carmel, California. One term was enough. You know, and then he joked about, yeah, I'm never getting back into politics again. And we know that he's talked politics at various venues. Um, but he never seriously considered running for any office, whether it was mayor, governor, like his buddy Arnold. Um, so in the late 80s, uh, the fifth and final Dirty Harry film, I think it's very good. You know, you see uh, in the Deadpool a very uh, a young Jim Carrey, a young Liam Neeson as part of the supporting cast. The film's terrific. It didn't really connect with audiences of the day. It was the same summer as um, Die Hard, summer of 88, a role that, uh, of John McClane that Clint supposedly turned down. I don't know if that's true. Supposedly Chuck Norris turned it down and Arnold turned it down and Mel Gibson. Nobody really knows for sure because these things weren't reported on and posted to Twitter or X or any social media as they were happening. Clint did a movie that was expected to be a box office hit with Bernadette Peters called Pink Cadillac, another movie that I find very enjoyable. It bombed, absolutely tanked at the box office. And Clint had made a movie uh, very successful artistically called Bird, starring Forrest Whitaker, about the... Um, the jazz musician Charlie Parker, and a lot of people rank Bird among their favorite Clint films as director, because he does not appear in the movie. Nobody went to see it. And then he had two movies in 1990, one which would have appeared to be a surefire box office success in The Rookie with Charlie Sheen, a straightforward action film, bombed. And before that, he had an artistic, niche type of project where he was essentially playing the great late filmmaker John Huston during the making of African Queen, and the film was called White Hunter Blackheart, and that also bombed. So Clint's career at age 60 appeared to be on the downside. It wasn't one movie, it was just the fact that a number of projects that had high hopes from the studio just didn't make what was expected. Now, the guy could still work. He still had the ability to get projects going. But the issue was Warner would maybe now be kind of a little bit iffy if they weren't sold on the script, whereas previously they would have just, you know, something like Firefox, which is a little ridiculous as much as it's entertaining. Uh, yeah, go ahead and make the movie. Now they might be giving it pause. So Clint had purchased a screenplay years earlier and I've read that he purchased it as far back as the outlaw Josie Wales days of the mid-70s, but then on another um, 
piece of literature, it implied that he had actually purchased it in the early 80s. So I don't really know when he bought the screenplay by David Webb Peoples uh, called The William Money Killings. But he purchased it at some point, and he did not believe that he was ready to make that movie. And not because, well, my career's going great, or I need a hit before I can do this. He felt he needed to be older to play this part, this kind of um, retired, if you will, gunslinger and an awful human being named William Money. After the failures, those multiple failures that I mentioned, whether coincidence or not, Clint dusted off his hard copy of the William Money killings, went to his, the executives at Warner, most of whom he considered friends, and said, I'd like to make this now. Um, this would have been probably early to mid-1991 that he said this. Uh, and they gave him the go-ahead. He outlined his plan to shoot on uh, a limited budget. This was not going to be $30 million or anything. He already knew where he wanted to shoot it. They were going to shoot it in Alberta, Canada. And he had started uh, making entreaties to get together the cast that he wanted, which included Sir Richard Harris, that's the first Albus Dumbledore, again, for the youngins, uh, Morgan Freeman, before Shawshank, and Gene Hackman, who everybody loves. And um, yeah, there, you can't say anything negative about Gene Hackman's acting ability and his capacity to just command the screen. So Clint got his cast together, disappeared to Canada for quite some time, and he made what was now retitled Unforgiven. Now, from what I can gather, the studio executives were not exactly that enthralled with the idea, but they gave Clint the courtesy, similar to in 2020, 21, when David Zaslav took over with Warner Brothers, that he was bewildered as to the reason, why did you fund this? I don't know that those executives thought that Unforgiven was going to be a hit. They may have subscribed to the theory that Clint was past his prime and that it's over for this guy. We don't know that. What we do know is he shot the movie, he came back, and he began preparing a cut for the executives at Warner's. Now, they were always talking about a, a summer 92 release. Uh, so Clint started working, started editing, he got the music uh, together, and he prepared a cut for the Warner Brothers executives. Now, right around this time, Clint was interested in not directing another movie as he was trying to finish Unforgiven. He was okay with just finding a script where he could maybe take a rest, which by his standards meant working only 60 or 70 or 80 hours a week, but without the responsibilities of also directing the film. Clint's agent uh, found a screenplay called In the Line of Fire and presented it to Clint. He said, hey, this might be something that you could do, that you could just act in. It looks it's very commercial. It looks like it'll be a, a fun movie. The script is a great read. So Clint read In the Line of Fire, which at this point had kind of bounced around through a lot of different hands uh, from Tom Cruise and even Dustin Hoffman, oddly enough, was considered at one point. And um, Clint really liked it. The story that he read, the version of the script that he read, was about an aging Secret Service agent who failed Kenny who as a rookie agent 
did not react in time to maybe take the fatal bullet or bullets that killed John F. Kennedy. And there's something in that that resonated with, at the time, 62, 61 going on 62-year-old Clint. So he told his agent, hey, I think this is a really good script. I haven't really done a movie like this, a little bit of psychological thriller overtones, but it has the action, has a little romance. Um, tell him I'm interested. Clint's agent got in touch with the appropriate people. Uh, Castle Rock, Rob Reiner's company was involved, uh, as well as the studio, which I believe was Universal, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it could have been Paramount. But Castle Rock was the primary mover at this stage of the process. So, according to legend, when Eastwood's agent called, whoever it was, and it wasn't Rob Reiner, <laughs> he wasn't answering the phones, the person that Eastwood's agent talked to when the agent expressed interest, we want Clint for this, uh, he, he's interested in doing it. The quote was, we're not in the Clint Eastwood business anymore. And that was the end of that conversation. Now, there's no record of Clint reacting to that or cursing anybody out or telling his agent, okay, no big deal, we'll, we'll come up with something else. The only thing we know that happened next is that Clint finished a cut of Unforgiven for the Warner Brothers studio executives. And this is sometime in the middle of February of 1992, where the film had an August release date. And those things can always be manipulated and played with if the film is behind schedule or if they need more time for marketing or what have you, even back then. Clint screened a very, very strong cut, which could have been it for the studio executives. And immediately, buzz began to build around Hollywood in Daily Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, the two main publications, certainly of the day. The executives think Clint knocked this out of the park, and they're not just blowing smoke. These are vetted. These are verified. Nobody's putting a name to it. But the word is that everyone in that room was knocked out by what they saw. So Clint really, as always, he brought the film in on time and under budget. There's a record that'll never be broken. Every movie that Clint Eastwood has ever produced and or directed, he brought it in on time and under budget. It's impossible to conceive. That's Clint Eastwood for you. So, with this buzz building, Eastwood may have knocked one out of the park. This is his best film since Josie Wales, maybe his best film since Dirty Harry, which he neither produced nor directed. All of a sudden, Eastwood's agent gets a phone call. From who? Castle Rock. Hey, sorry if we insulted your client, but if Mr. Eastwood is still interested in playing Frank Harrigan in, in the line of fire, we would love to have a meeting with both of you. Eastwood agent kind of chuckled, relayed the information to Clint, who was not upset. He had a hunch this is what was going to happen. And they took a meeting, and sure enough, they signed a deal before the release of Unforgiven, right? The movie could have come out and bombed, or maybe the executives messed up as, if, as they messed up with Goodfellas and Bonfire not that long prior, getting those backwards. But Clint signed on to just act in Wolfgang Peterson, who's going to direct, 
in the line of fire. And one of the, to me, really fascinating things about this, before the movie was shot, not only the number of people whose hands it passed through, as I mentioned, Tom Cruise and um, Dustin Hoffman, the, the whole idea of Tom Cruise, and Cruise apparently came in after Hoffman to, to read or to talk about maybe signing on. So the original script by Jeff McGuire that sold did not have the Kennedy angle. It was still a gripping story, but it was less personal. And it was Dustin Hoffman who apparently came up with that, that incredible, sellable, commercial, edge-of-your-seat angle of how about if the fact is that Hargan was a rookie agent when Kennedy died, and he's haunted by it, and that's why this assassin is doing what he's doing. He's making it personal. It's personal for both guys. So after Dustin Hoffman wowed the people who were involved, presumably at Castle Rock at that stage, way in pre-production, where they didn't even have an actor yet, then they asked, well, maybe we can get Tom Cruise. But then you say to yourself, what are you doing? Would it be that Tom Cruise's father was the agent that had to, it, it, there's, it wouldn't have worked. Like, I love Tom Cruise, but not for that movie, not for that role. So they go ahead and they make In the Line of Fire. And while this is going on, Unforgiven is a big hit at the box office and wins four Academy Awards including Best Picture and Best Director for Clint, Supporting Actor for Gene, and Screenplay for David Webb Peoples. In the Line of Fire wraps filming, and it's released July 9, 1993, and I saw it with my dad opening day, and I can tell you that the experience of seeing it in theaters, and I was already a huge fan of this guy. Hadn't begun film school yet, but I was a huge fan of Clint. And seeing him in such command, just as an actor, the way that he was holding the screen, the way that he was interacting, there's a reason why this guy was already and had already been a star for nearly 30 years at that point. And 30 years later, the man is still working. Some people, it's not just Hollywood, in all walks of life, some people just have the magic. And Clint Eastwood is one of those people who had and has the magic. So, as you say, the film was a huge box office success. Um, and John Malkovich should have won supporting actor, didn't. Uh, I think that McGuire could have won best screenplay, and didn't. And um, yeah, I think the other uh, Academy Award nomination was for editing. And it could have won for that, and it didn't. But the film was a hit in its day, and it's been running on Netflix a lot over the last couple of years, and it consistently draws new viewers. And it is one of those movies that if somebody asks me, someone who is maybe not um, that familiar with, with Clint's work, and certainly there are plenty of people, it doesn't, I'm not gonna you know, be an ageist in reverse and say, oh, anyone under 30. There are plenty of people, plenty of Gen Xers, um, even younger Gen Xers, that you know, they see Clint as this kind of old dinosaur and are maybe not that familiar with his work. If somebody were to ask me, I know who he is, I know he won Oscar, you know, Million Dollar Baby, uh, more than a decade after In the Line of Fire, 
and Unforgiven. I know who he is. I know he was mayor of Carmel, California. But the only movie I've ever seen that he was in was Space Cowboys, which my dad forced me to watch. Somebody actually, almost word for word, is what they told me. In the Line of Fire is one of the movies that I would recommend for a neophyte who just knows who Clint is and maybe has seen one movie or two movies or something like that. Or, or Gran Torino. A lot of young people love Gran Torino, and that's their experience with him as an actor. In a Line of Fire is a film that will play with any audience, almost any demographic, honestly. Um, and it is one of those sort of special films where you had an actor at a certain point in his professional career and his regular life, and you can see it informing what he does on screen. This was not, in this movie, this is not the Clint of Dirty Harry, who was in his early 40s and at the peak of his physical prowess. This is a guy who is still resourceful, potent as fuck, but this is a guy who is not gonna be able to solve this problem with just a 44 Magnum or his fists, his physicality. He's gonna have to use his brain. And Clint showing the vulnerability in this film. There's a scene, I'm not really giving much away. There's a scene where he appears to tear up while recounting the story of that fateful day in Dallas, November 22nd, 1963, to Rene Russo's character, who plays a fellow Secret Service agent. And I remember watching that scene in the theater. And there were people in the theater, I could hear them, he's not crying, is he? He's not crying, is he? He's not crying. No, no, he's not crying. He's not crying couldn't accept that Clint Eastwood, you know, a, a kind of epitome of masculinity of the day, or at least the perception of, was crying on screen. Newsflash, he does cry in that scene. And it was not in the script, but he felt, again, the connection with this particular character. Not that it was him, but that he identified and he empathized with this character that he was playing, and it informed his performance. And he allowed his character to look weak and vulnerable and almost pathetic at times because John Malkovich's villain was such a great villain. Mitch Leary is running Clint's character around by a string for huge chunks of the film. He is dictating the pace of the story and of what's going to happen. And it's like he wants a challenge and Clint ends up being, you know, more than a match for him. Thirty and a half years later, the fact that this man is still working is just extraordinary. 93, closer to his 94th birthday than his 93rd, and still going. And um, there's really not much to say. My second favorite person in the movie business, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And um, that's another friendship that really warms the heart. Uh, Arnold has always looked up to Clint, always idolized him. But when you get to be the age of these guys, like Clint being 93 and Arnold now 76, uh, They've been friends for decades. Like, there are pictures of Arnold and Clint through time where you say, holy shit, they've known each other that yet. Yeah, they have. And it doesn't mean that they hang out all the time. They've never made a movie together, you know, like the way that Arnold and, and Stallone had this kind of ridiculous feud and then became buddies and worked together a bunch of times, spent I don't even know how many hundreds of hours in one another's company. But Clint is just one of those people that almost everyone respects. And in the case of Arnold, that, that was the career path that he would have liked to have had, that someday maybe be up for Oscar, even if it's from the producer side. You know, Clint, Arnold um, directed a movie, Christmas in Connecticut, in the early 90s, which a lot of people really liked. But he didn't, he didn't 
continue to direct. He didn't really go forward in that particular arena. And yes, there is an irony that Clint, one of the first big movie stars to take such a huge control of his career with Malpaso Productions, in one of his best roles, was just an actor. The role of Frank Harrigan in In the Line of Fire, which, as I said, is available on Netflix. And this really wacky story that I've just told, it's not the kind of thing you can Google because you would have to know some of the mechanics of it for Google to be of any use. Um, but a large percentage, if, if you're interested, uh, of this story, the various sources, uh, you know, like Carrie Fisher did an uncredited rewrite on In the Line of Fire. But there was a book called Selling the Screenplay uh, that I read many, many years ago, which got into some of this from the perspective of the screenwriter, Jeff McGuire, and all of the, the um, unusual activity with Castle Rock just seeming to poo-poo the fact that, man, Eastwood's only 61 going on 62. Are we really going to be so dismissive? They were. Luckily, they got religion, and it all worked out. So that's going to bring this episode, episode 16 of Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind, to a close. I want to thank you all for joining me and um, remind you once again to click like and subscribe on all the audio platforms and especially my YouTube channel. I'll see you all again real soon. Take care.